Let's open up to Daniel 11, as Pastor Marcus said. We're going to be in verses 36 through 46, uh, 36 through 45, excuse me. Daniel 11, 36 through 45. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that, that's yours. Take it home. Uh, write your name in it. It's your Bible. It's a gift from our, our church to you. Um, as you make your way there to Daniel 11, verse 36, if you weren't here last week, you missed out on so much. How many of you were like, every <laughs> chuckle, 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 chuckle. I'm still going over my notes to find out what I said. But basically, you missed out on one of the most detailed prophecies and really detailed prophecies regarding, in, in the first 35 chap- verses of Daniel 11, regarding the future of Israel. And to summarize and I say that word lightly, to summarize, um, one thing to remember is that chapters 10, 11, and 12 are kind of a unit. They're the last vision, basically, in the book of Daniel. From chapter 7 all the way through 12, it's three different visions. The first, uh, basically, six chapters of Daniel are historical background, and then you get to chapter 7, and through the end, it's, it's three different visions. And so, uh, In chapter 10, we have a story behind the angelic messenger uh, who came to Daniel of how he got there. And then in chapter 11, we actually have the message, which we started into last week. In chapter 12, it'll finish the message and also wrap it up. And so we'll be finishing the book of Daniel next week. That'll be exciting, um, theoretically. Um, So it's important to keep that in mind. But just briefly to kind of give the context of where we are, in chapter 10, which we began uh, a little while ago. It begins this section. Uh, Daniel's in his mid-80s. He's, he's an old man now. We, if you've been following along in Daniel, he's been in captivity basically ever since he was a teenager. So 70 years he's been in Babylon. Jerusalem got conquered when he was a teenager, got yanked back to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. He's been there for 70-plus years now. And he's mourning and praying because finally the Lord uh, made it so that there, a decree went out from the king, uh, King Cyrus there, and he allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, and this is what we've been longing for, and guess what? Not very many did, like 40,000 out of a considerable number, and so Daniel's mourning as he sees there isn't really a hunger and a response to go back, and he's praying for three weeks, and at the end of that three weeks, Uh, Finally, his prayer is answered by an angel who comes, and I'm not going to repeat all the things in that chapter, but an angel basically comes and delivers Daniel this prophecy concerning the future of Israel. What's going to happen to Israel? And as I said, uh, this prophecy goes for all of chapter 11 and chapter 12, okay? And the key to understanding this prophecy, at least part of it, is in chapter 10, verse 14, where the angel tells Daniel Uh, the reason why he came, he said, to make you, Daniel, understand what is to happen to your people, that's the Israelites, in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. This is 500 years before Christ, 550, and he's telling Daniel, this is what's coming to Israel. This is what your future of your people is. And so this vision is about what's going to happen uh, to Israel. And what we focused on last Sunday was verses 1, basically through 35 of chapter 11, which talk about the near fulfillment of what's going to happen to Israel. It talks about basically what's going to happen to Israel over the next four to 500 years. I'm really being rough around these numbers. But, and that's what happens. It walks us all the way up 
um, all the way from, from, uh, from just a couple hundred years from Daniel all the way down to very close to the time when Jesus was born. Give or take a hundred years. But we saw that last t- Sunday in the first 35 verses of, of, of chapter 11. The prophecy focused on four kings that would be coming. Basically four kings. I'm simplifying it because you guys remember last week there was a lot of other kings uh, in there and there was all these uh, you know, daughters being married off and people dying and all this stuff. But the first was Azurus, who was basically uh, Xerxes I. He came on the scene, the king of Persia. And then it moves to Alexander the Great, the king of Greece. And remember, the Alexander the Great dies, and then this kingdom is divided into four kingdoms. And then it focuses on basically two of those kingdoms. So two, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of the four kingdoms. And, of, and then it really focuses on the northern kingdom Basically, in, in verses 10 to 20 is Alexander the Great, uh, not Alexander the Great, uh, Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the First. And then, basically, verses 20 to 35, <clears throat> we get focused on this maniacal king called, uh, basically, Antiochus the Fourth, who he, he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, or basically the, the epitome of God, or whatever he calls himself. He's just very evil. But we ended on Antiochus IV, the fourth of these kings that would come, really, that were, were highlighted there. And he was vile and exceptionally cruel to the Jews, exceptionally cruel. We remembered about how he slaughtered all these people, and it was just horrible. And what he did to the temple and violated their culture, everything. And just as we did in chapter 8, we saw once again that Antiochus Epiphanes was a picture of the Antichrist. He was a prototype of the Antichrist who would come. And so a lot of the things that he did, the desecration of the temple, the persecution of the Jews, the abomination that causes desolation, all these things we talked about, all those things would be done again at a later time, a time yet future for us now. In the last week of the 70 weeks of Daniel, if you haven't flown along, it's basically talking about the seven years leading up to the return of Christ, and that is called the tribulation period. And that is when the Antichrist, this Antiochus of the past, he's going to resurface in a different guy, and he is going to be just as maniacal, more maniacal. He's going to be horrible. And so that's basically, we saw that Antiochus, he sacrificed a pig on an altar, and he, uh, he set up a, temp, uh, a statue of Zeus in the temple there in Jerusalem. And we saw that he viciously slaughtered the Jews uh, who would not abandon their God. And that's where we kind of ended in verses 34 and 35, uh, which says, when they stumble, they shall receive little help. These are the, the Jews. And many shall join themselves with, uh, to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, and so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits to the appointed time. And so the angel was basically saying uh, that when Antiochus and those like him come around, uh, on the scene shortly to Daniel, he's saying, many who said they were gods are going to abandon, abandon God. Many who said they were Jews, you're going to find out that they weren't really true Jews when the persecution comes. But on the flip side, this is going to be a refining time for those who truly are. They're going to be purified and refined. And he says, and that's going to go on until the end. This is going to keep on going until the end of time. And that's where we start to pull out of that near fulfillment and he starts going this is going to go on until that last week until the Lord returns 
This kind of stuff is going to go on. And he really starts to take a view of that last week of Daniel, which is yet to come, that 70th week, that is, uh, of tr- which we call the tribulation, that final seven years leading up to the return of Christ, where the Lord focuses once again on the nation of Israel. And so up until verse 35, the angel speaks about the near future, and now we're moving into a transition to t- talk about the future, the far future, f- uh, future of Israel. And so it was focused in particular on Antiochus, and now we're moving to Antichrist. Antiochus being a picture, and Antichrist being the fulfillment. And that's where we are now in verse 36. We jump forward an unknown amount of time. Now, if you're just reading this, you're going to go to verse 36 and keep reading on, but all of a sudden it starts to get weird because you don't have any historical references. You don't understand what's going on anymore. And that's what happens quite often in Scripture. You're reading, you get to a point, and then all of a sudden it jumps forward in time because the nature of prophecy is that it has a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment. This happens over and over and over. Remember, we read in Daniel chapter 7, the same thing happened. We were talking about... uh, uh, Daniel chapter 7 about uh, Antiochus, I'm sorry, about the beast. Remember he had the four beasts, and the fourth beast uh, was, was, was Rome, and then all of a sudden that, that fourth beast became a revived Rome. It jumped forward in time, and so there was a Rome, and then there was a Rome too, and there was a Roman leader, but then there was a future Roman leader. That's what happened in chapter 7. It did the same thing. Then chapter 8, it described a ram and a goat, and then all of a sudden it talked about the little horn, and then it jumped forward in time, talking about Antiochus, and then it talks about Antichrist. And so, and they does it again in chapter 9, talking about the 70 weeks. You get to the 69th week, it's all talking about things that are kind of near future, and then all of a sudden it jumps to the seven, seven, 70th week, which is in the future. Also, remember Jesus when he was uh, in Jerusalem, and, and, and you've and actually he was in Nazareth, and he was reading the scriptures. He was reading these things about Isaiah, and he, and he reads this one verse, and he closes it, and they're all amazed at him. Well, that, that prophecy he was reading was in Isaiah, and he only he stopped right in the middle of that verse in Isaiah. We don't know that unless you go back and read the verse of Isaiah. But the first part about healing the lame and, and, and doing all that stuff, that's what he came to do there now. But the second part of that verse, coming back to righteously judge, that wasn't for then. It was yet to come. Same thing here. We're jumping forward in time. So this is really nothing new. So here in chapter 11, uh, it happens that verses 1 through 35 are, again, we already went over this, but the near fulfillment, now we're focused on a future time that's coming. So let's pick up in verse 36 where it talks about this future king. One like Antiochus, but not Antiochus. We've gone from the prototype to the real deal. We've gone from Antiochus to Antichrist. That's who we're going to. Verse 36, through the end of the chapter, these 10 verses or nine verses are going to be neat. And the king shall do as he wills, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods, and he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Antichrist is a pretty fascinating uh, figure. I think we all have a lot of opinions about him, and you know maybe movies and things have shaped our theology on that. Well, don't let it. This is, this is where you want to go to figure out this kind of stuff. 
It describes who this future king, this future last final ruler of men is gonna be, the Antichrist right here. It starts to describe him, and the first thing we find out is that he is a king who's going to do as he wills. And we find out what his will is. What's his will? Well, his will is that he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. That's who this guy is going to be. He's going to put down every single type of god and religion. Ultimately, this is his aim, and with the purpose of exalting himself in the place of God. That is who is going to be at the helm of the world at this time. Unlike Antiochus, who went into and desecrated the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and put a statue of Zeus in there and told everybody to conform to Greek culture and worship all this type of stuff, unlike Antiochus, or, or Roman influencer, a little bit, but unlike him, this guy, Antichrist, isn't going to be directing people to worship Zeus. He's going to be directing people to worship himself. He isn't going to be directed, directing people towards a pagan god or towards religion or even a false religion. There will be a, a, a false prophet ultimately. But the purpose is he's going, to, he's going to be exalting and magnifying himself above every god. And these gods are lowercase, uh, fa- false gods, right? Paul spoke of this in 2 Thess- Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember some people were thinking that Jesus had already come back. And so Paul's writing them and says, no, Jesus hasn't already come back because there's things that have to happen before he comes back. And he says to him in verse 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, the falling away comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is the Antichrist. Who, verse 4, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's what the Antichrist is all about. He's about him. He's the fourth beast. He's the little horn. He's the man of lawlessness. He's the son of perdition. He's the son of destruction. And his aim is to exalt himself above every single religion on earth. You know, we all divide ourselves about all this religion. He just doesn't care about any of it. He just wants, number one, himself to be on top. And ultimately, in the place of God Almighty. That's what is going on. And this is true, and, and this is true, this is the true abomination that causes desolation. It's not a peg being sacrificed on an altar in the holy place and, uh, you know, and, a, and a temple of Zeus being brought in there. That's a, a foreshadowing of what truly is going to go on, the total desecration of the name of God in this person. And there's something very particular and special about this person that's different than any other person. But again, the abomination that causes desolation, meaning this and that's basically what brings on the great tribulation at the middle point of this seven-year period. Um, he does that. Uh, he stands up and he declares that he is God, and, and it pours out the wrath of God, and then armies starting attack, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But the Antichrist is all about self-exaltation. Think about this for a second. He's all about self-exaltation. 
John said the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. It's already here. Paul says in the end times, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, disobedient to their parents, all this type of stuff. It's all about them. Evil will be called good and good will be called evil. But the Antichrist is all about self-exaltation and this is because he will be possessed and empowered by Satan himself. He's not going to be demon-possessed. He's going to be Satan-possessed. This is who this man is going to be. Satan is going to embody this man. He is going to be the self-exalter, just as Satan is the self-exalter. They're going to be one. In Isaiah 14, 13 uh, through 14, we have the five I will statements of Lucifer, Satan. Do you remember what he said? He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the, the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the most high. This is the enemy. It's always about up. It's always about up. What is the spirit of our age? It's always about up. Where do you think that's coming from? Our fallen flesh, influenced by the prince of the power of the air who works the sons of disobedience. That's what's going on. He exalts himself, and the Antichrist will do the same. If you remember in Jesus' temptation when, when Satan took Jesus, where did he take him? He took him to the high mountain, and showed him all the places that he ruled. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple and challenged him. He's always exalting himself above where he should be. And actually, we find that he was cast down and out. That's who he is. He's a usurper. And this is what, this is what the Antichrist is going to do. This is what the Antichrist is going to be. He is going to be a self-exaltation. He has the heart behind him to put himself in the place of God, and that's what's going to happen in that temple on that day at the midpoint of the tribulation that begins to pour out the wrath of God upon the world. And this is going to happen. It says there at the end of that verse, in the end of verse 36, that he's going to prosper until the indignation is accomplished, until the wrath of God is poured out, until the end of that seven years, he's going to have success. That's what's going to go on. And so he's going to be an egomaniac. He will initially make a peace treaty with Israel at the beginning of that seven years, but that is not his aim. His aim is not to have world peace. His aim is to use that as a means to rebuild the temple, to be in there, to go ahead and exalt himself. There's all reasons behind this. His aim is self-worship, focused worship on himself, and he will demand worldwide worship of himself. That is what is going to go on. Verse 37, and he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the, or the beloved by women, and he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. And again, this is just talking about the same thing, basically, but there's different ways of interpreting this. Some people believe that when it says he shall pay no attention to other gods and all that type of stuff or the gods of his father, how many of you have God of his fathers in there? In your translation, some of you have God's uh, uh, plural. 
So some people think that he might be Jewish because of this, because the term God of his, God of his father is a Jewish term. But gods might be Gentile. So we don't know. He could be Jewish or Gentile here. We don't know. All the prototypes so far have been Gentile, but then we've got Judas and others. So anyways, we could see he could be Jewish. And then it says that he's basically, he's not going to, uh, he's, uh, the, the second part of that is he shall not pay attention, I'm sorry, uh, or, to the, or to the beloved by women. Some people think he might be homosexual. That could be the case. Or that he could just not care about any rela- natural relations around him. That seems possible. Um, others believe that this is, is a referring, if it was a, from a Jewish perspective, it's the beloved of women would be um, the desire of every young Jewish, Jewish girl's desire to one day bear the Messiah, the beloved of, of women. And so it could be that he doesn't, he abandons his God, uh, he doesn't care about his, his spiritual heritage being a Jew, and he doesn't, um, and he doesn't, uh, and he doesn't care about the Messiah whatsoever, he's just against it. That could be one interpretation. I tend to lean towards that, but it could be he's just a Gentile who's godless and an atheist. Well, that could be very well. But the point is that he doesn't care about any of them or anything. He's just paying attention to himself. That's it, okay? And we see that in world leaders all the time. Verse 38, And he shall honor the gods of fortresses instead of these. And so he's not going to honor his heritage. He's going to honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. The god of fortresses, simply put, is power. That is his god. He has power. He's all about power. And Satan is definitely the one who needs, who is the god of strongholds, so to speak. And so he's going to use his wealth, his gold, his resources and everything to build a war machine that is going to go down and tear down physical strongholds. He is going to be a man of war who uh, who acquires power. That's what he's going to be about. Verse 39, and he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. And he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide a land for a price. And so he's going to be going to war with all the nations. He's going to be warring. He's going to do this with the help of a foreign god. This is Satan. This is who it is. Revelation 13, 2 says, And to to it the dragon gave his power and his throne in great authority. And it goes on to talk about how he had power to destroy things. And The dragon being Satan gives it, the beast, the Antichrist, his power, his authority to do all this stuff. This guy is going to be satanically empowered. And he's going to have a false prophet right next to him doing signs and wonders and things that are absolutely going to deceive the world. Very powerful. It's interesting as we kind of are are hearing more and more about the phenomenal type of things. Oh, UFOs above this and that. You know, there's 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 an opening to... Um, all these types of things, and, and we're so, you know, we're, we're no longer like, ah, you know, whatever, as, as a culture, we're kind of like, ooh, that's neat, let's watch, you know, 45 minutes on UFOs, and, and then all of a sudden our minds are shaped. I'm not saying here or there on that, I'm just saying that the signs and wonders are going to come, and there's going to be a people who are ready to be deceived, and we are ripe for deception, and 
Those who submit, submit to him, when his war machine goes through and he destroys these countries, those who submit to him who, after they're defeated, they turn around and say, listen, we're following you, we're in, we submit. Who can withstand your power? We are behind you. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to load them with honor. He's going to allow them to continue to maintain power of their own areas. Can you believe that? He's going to go ahead and give them uh, power over their territories that they lost but it's going to be at a price. He's going to divide the land up, and he's going to get something for it. And that, so that's what's going on. They're going to pay tribute. So the Antichrist will be a man of war, empowered by Satan. He'll conquer people, and then to manage those areas, he'll allow them to control them, but they will have to have absolute devotion to him. Sounds like Hitler. Verse 40. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a, a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. Now, some get confused about what all this means here, uh, myself sometimes included. Uh, who's attacking who here? Is it the north and the south attacking him, or is it just the south attacking him and he is the north? So I tend to believe that the north and him is the Antichrist, and the south is Egypt at this point. So at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north, that is the Antichrist, shall rush upon him, that is the king of the south, with his chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And so there's that phrase again, at the time of the end. Did you see that? It's letting us know this is going to be in that last seven-year period, at the very end, at the very end, this stuff is going to start to take place, at the time of the end. Now please keep in, in mind that the Antichrist uh, and his armies will be protecting Israel at the beginning of this seven-year period. He's going to make a treaty with him. How many people really like Israel in the world? I mean, they just get, all the nations just want to kind of take out Israel, right? That's kind of how it is. Well, what's going to happen is there might be some kind of war situation. There's going to be a treaty that comes out of that to where this guy in his power, as he is in charge of the reunified Europe, the um, the uh, revived Rome, he and his amazing military might and power and all this stuff is going to have a treaty with Israel. He's going to be the protector for three and a half years. It's a seven-year treaty, but the idea is that it's going to be for, he's going to hold it for three and a half years. Keep in mind there that it's until, it, when, when, when we reach that three and a half year point, he's going to break that treaty. This is when he goes into the temple, he declares himself to be God, and he demands that the world worship him. Okay? And so, until that point, he is keeping the nations around Israel at bay by his power. But there comes a point in time when the nations start to oppose even him. They start to get upset at him, and they start to turn on him and it will begin with the king of the south in verse 40 and and some of those believe it's it's egypt and as you see there's a couple other nations there with ancient names but there it's basically northern africa northern africa is going to be the first to go ahead and strike back now who's in north northern africa today in that whole area the arab nations now who do you think is going to go berserk if someone goes in and says now worship me on the Temple Mount, where the temple is built. <laughs> yeah. And so many believe that it's at this three-and-a-half-year point 
that as he declares himself to be this God in that place, that the northern area of Egypt starts to attack, and they just full-on roll into Jerusalem and start to attack. Very well, but what happens, it says, is that, that, um, that they come up, but the king of the north shall rush on him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many warships. And obviously this is old technology, but you understand the, 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 the machines of war will roll on that southern front of Egypt. And what happens, verse 40 says, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through, and he shall come into the glorious land, Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall. And so there's this battle between the king of the north, the Antichrist, and the king of the south. Remember, this is what we've already gone through. And this is going to happen again, in a sense, later on. In the near future it happened, and the reason why he said that is because that's happening here, Daniel, but guess what? That's just a prototype of what is going to happen in the end. The king of the south are going to roll up north for some reason. And they're going to be led by a confederation there, just by Egypt actually at the helm. But it says that he's going to come and roll over them and tens of thousands are going to die. And so here you have Egypt attacking from the south and now the armies of Europe pouring through. Where do they meet? Israel. <laughs> they meet in Israel. That's where this is taking place. But it says there, verse 41 goes on to say, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. So while this battle is going on, these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and uh, the main parts of the Ammonites. This would be the area of modern-day Jordan. I've been there, and uh, there's nothing to conquer. You know, if you're from Jordan, there's just a lot of dirt and a couple cool, really neat cities, but a lot of, a lot of vagabonds, and there's a lot of nothing out there. But it says that these people shall be delivered. Now, why in the world is it going to say that? Why would it say that? Why does it point this out? Who knows how long before it happens? But it's interesting that in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, as he is on the Mount of Olives and he's preaching, he warns, he warns the Jews to flee the wilderness, flee to the wilderness, remember that, when they see the abomination that causes desolation. So when the Antichrist comes into, into the temple and he does this, he tells them, you'd better get out of there because a time is coming upon you that has it's going to be horrible. You better pray that your fling doesn't happen on the Sabbath or you better not be pregnant. All this type of stuff, he warns me, it's going to be bad. That's when real trouble happens, when this peace treaty falls apart and people flee as refuge into the wilderness, into Jordan. Revelation 12, 13 through 16 says much of the same thing. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, Dragon being Satan, the woman being Israel, giving birth to the male child, meaning the Messiah. He pursued Israel. And the women in Israel and the children, basically, uh, he's, a, he's going after them as they're fleeing. Verse 24, but the woman was given the wings, uh, two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. God graciously allowed people to escape into the wilderness uh, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, time and a half, for three and a half years. 
So for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, Jews are going to flee. They're going to run. My guess is they're going to run into Jordan in these areas, and they're going to find refuge in, in here. And there's other verses in Isaiah that talk about this more in depth. We're not going to go into that this morning. And so perhaps this is why they're, they're spared during this time. But God in his sovereignty causes there to be these people who escape the Antichrist's hands. But one thing is clear, verse 42, we're almost at the end. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So the Antichrist crushes the North African resistance, basically. And verse 43 says, he shall become ruler of treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. You know North Africa has amazing natural resources and all this type of stuff that basically a a war machine would absolutely need, especially when you're talking about fuel and all this kind of stuff. But he crushes them, and all these people come under his power now. The South is dealt with. The South is dealt with as he gains control. Tremendous amount of power. Verse 44 says, But news from the East and the North shall alarm him. Now, the East and the North are hard to pin down here, but the best guess is that something, this is, this is the east being those from China or the, or the Orient area. And we know that in Revelation, basically 9.13, it talks about a 200 million man army that's going to march over the Euphrates. The Euphrates is going to dry up and they're going to come in from that way. And so there's a coalition of the kings of the east that starts to come. And then the kings of the north, this is not the north that he's in, the far north. This would be Russia. Having recovered from a war seven years prior, I'm not going to get into all that with Gog and Magog, they start to come back down. And they start to attack, and, and you can read about that seven years prior war in Ezekiel 37, 38. But, so both of these armies are converging on the Holy Land. Now here's the cool part. And so it's at this point, the Antichrist turns from mopping up things in the south, and he goes back up to to face these people in battle in Israel is where they're coming to converge. And the end of verse 44 says, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. So he goes to attack them. Verse 45, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And so he sets up his headquarters for this campaign somewhere between either the Dead Sea or the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere in there in Israel, he's going to Plant his, he's going to plant his, his palatial quarters. My guess is it's going to be in Jerusalem. He sets up his headquarters there. His camp is set up for this major battle, but the, the battle actually takes place north of, Israel, north of Jerusalem in a valley called the Valley of Megiddo. That should trip your mind here because and, and some of you have seen that or know it. I see, I'm looking at it in my mind right now. The Valley of Megiddo which is the valley where the battle of Armageddon takes place. And so here are these superpowers all faced to fight one another there in Israel. They're all poised to fight one another. Here they come, the, the, the epic battle of the ages, and I, I guess there is some warfare going on, but there's one problem. Zechariah 14, 1-3 speaks of it. It says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, speaking to Israel, you guys have been plundered and all your spoil, all that stuff that's been taken from you, all these years of all these things, 
All the things that are going to be taken, there's coming a day when that spoil is going to be divided in your midst. Why? For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out in exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. They're going to stay. So the Antichrist is going to wreak havoc on Jerusalem from the time of that abomination that causes desolation. He's going to start destroying them. Things are going to happen. It's going to be horrible, all the things we just mentioned and more. And all these armies are going to come gather. South's going to come. Then the other side's going to come. They're all going to converge on Israel. They're all going to think they're fighting each other. But there's, we find out that it's actually the Lord who's gathering them. People think they have their plans. The armies think they're doing their thing. They're going to battle for supremacy, but what they don't realize is they've all been drawn in. And it's the Lord who's drawing them in. And then verse 3 of Zechariah says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. And when he, as, as when he fights on a day of battle, the Lord is going to return. That's the problem. The stone without hands that's built is going to come and it's going to hit the kingdoms of men and they will crumble and they will fall on that day. As Daniel prophesied back in the beginning. The problem is that the Lord returns. The Lord returns and without a word I mean, they didn't have a chance. He just speaks, basically, and, and they all get wiped out. In particular, the Antichrist. And that's what the end of verse 45 says. It just sums it up. It says, yet he, that is the Antichrist, shall come to his end with none to help him. You know, we all expect these Lord of the Ring battles to happen. Yeah, all the nations are gathering together, but what happens is God just shows up and speaks. And it's done. The king is here. He sets down. And he, it's over. There's no battle. They're all fighting among themselves. But there's no like, oh, you know, we're losing. And oh, come on, Lord, won't you do it? No, he just comes back and boom, it's his. That's our God. That's our Lord. That's our king. That's the king is coming. That's what we're waiting for. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 says of the end of Antichrist, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Man, when light pierces darkness, when Jesus Christ returns, He's going to speak and as his radiance beams and his glory comes and his angels and we're with him, when he comes, it is going to be glorious. He's going to speak and Antichrist is, all these armies are, are toast. And we do actually have a little bit more information about how this goes down. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, it says, And then I saw the heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. The first time Jesus came, he came on a donkey, riding into Jerusalem, a symbol of peace, desiring that all would repent, that all would come. He came to, to make a way for peace between God and man. But men, in general, would not turn. They crucified him. He's coming the second time on a horse of war. 
He comes riding a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes what? War. This is Jesus. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has the name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, of, the, of God Almighty. And verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Verse 17, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he cried to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against the armies. They're all there to fight one another, and then they see him come in his brilliance as the signs are happening, and all this stuff is going on. And at this point, they turn to fight God. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. You're expecting some giant epic battle. No, just the beast was captured. An angel goes down there and snatches him by the collar and captures him. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged uh, gorged with their flesh. That's the battle. It is one-sided, absolute domination by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, coming to take back what is his. Just as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In other words, he's just going to speak and his days will be done. He'll be taken and cast alive into the lake of fire. It'll be over. The same word that put the world into existence and holds it together, he's going to speak it's going to be done. With the sword of his mouth, all the nations are going to be slaughtered. Wow. Daniel's weeping and crying. He said, what's going to happen to Israel? Well, the true Israel is going to be refined through all of this, both near and far. But make no mistake, The Lord's coming back, and he's coming back for his people. The question is, meantime, we're not Israel. But guess what? We are the bride of Christ. He's going to come back. I believe there's going to be a rapture. If not, if we go through this at the end of that time, some of us believe that. He's coming back.
refining times are coming to the earth. God said they were going to happen. It's going to be difficult and hard. And they will definitely, some will join to the Antichrist, join to the spirit of the age. We see it now. The great falling away will happen before the Antichrist, is gonna, before the Lord comes back. It's happening now in the church. People don't teach the Bible. They don't teach the gospel. They don't teach that all men must repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. And they, for God so loved the world because he knows what's coming that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe, that is repent, turn from your sin, believe in Christ, that they would not perish, not only physically in these things, but ultimately being cast into hell. They would not perish, but have everlasting life, be a part of the kingdom of God. It's all through repentance and believing in faith. This is the church. This is what we stand on. We stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and a loving God who looked over our sins, saw that we were absolutely in total rebellion, says, you know what? I'm buying them. I'm buying their mess with the blood of my son. That's what we celebrated when we began. And so are, how, how then now are we to live as believers? In this age and in this time, are we to be engaged in the culture around us? Are we to abandon the Lord and start to pull in all the things of the world and make ourselves so comfortable with everything? Where is our hope? Where is our heart? Where is our life? Convicting, and I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. The Lord is so good. He demands my life, everything. Jesus is Lord, church. He is Lord. You know what that means? He's not second place. But we have a loving Lord, amen? Loving Lord. He's so good, gracious, kind, forgives us of our sin, empowers us to walk this walk, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith in these days, amen? Amen. So, the Lord's going to come, and he's going to take care of business. He will make good on his promises to Israel and he will make good on his promises to his church. So let's continue to be in the word together. Not just to get intellectual knowledge, but that we would know the God of the word, the God that we love, the God that loves us. Amen? And let's love one another more deeply. Let's get more into one another's lives and find out what's going on, not less, as we see the day approaching. Let's be bold in our faith. Let's be willing to suffer. Let's proclaim the gospel. If we don't understand it, let's find it out. Amen? Amen. Pray for me too. (laughs) All right. Let's pray. Lord, it's exciting to see how you are sovereign in that you know what's coming. You said what would happen, and we saw it up to verse 35. It happened exactly in history. And Lord, just as you say these things will happen, they will happen exactly as you say. And Lord, we know that uh, Peter says that there will be those scoffers who say, where's the Lord's return? Why hasn't he come back? Where's your God? Where's your fairy tale God? And we hear it from all these people. But the reason why you haven't returned is that you desire that you'd have mercy on those, that all would come to repentance and not perish. That's why you, you're, you're delaying your, your coming, is your long-suffering, Lord. 
And Lord, thank you for being long-suffering with us. And Lord, we, we extend our hearts and our prayers to the lost people around us, those we love, Lord, the, the people, our neighbors, our family members, these people that are around us that are just lost and swept up in the spirit of the age just as we have been. God, please make us a witness to them, a witness of your truth, that we would walk in holiness and not judgment, but holiness and preach the truth and encourage them and just be a light and salt, Lord, as you were when you were on the earth. And may many of them repent and come to you. Lord, we're undeserving to be your servants, but Lord, nevertheless, you, that's your plan. And so here we are, and the world's before us. We just want to thank you for being our king, and we can be your kids. And so today we worship you, and we exalt you in spirit and in truth. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, Father. Amen.